This episode of Ghost Stories is brought to you by Satrix, the leading provider of index tracking solutions in South Africa and a proud partner of Ghostmail. With no minimums and easy, low-cost access to local and global products via the Satrix Now online investment platform, everyone can own the market. Visit satrix.co.za for more information. Welcome to this episode of the Ghost Stories podcast with Nico Katzka from Satrix. And Nico, we always have such a good time when you join me on these podcasts. I always learn a lot. I think our listeners always learn a lot. You have a lot to share. And I think we're going to talk about some really cool stuff today. So welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Ghost, thanks for having me back and look forward to the chat, yes. So I think let's start off with something that's been nice and topical in the news and actually quite poorly understood, I think, by a lot of people in the market. And, you know, the US index has been on an absolute charge. Uh, everyone was waiting to see what would happen with NVIDIA. I didn't follow it as closely last night as perhaps I should have, but from the headlines I did see it managed to gain a little bit more even. So, you know, this thing continues to to march on somewhat, despite what's going on with US yields, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of volatility. And something that caught the headlines was good old Michael Burry shorting the market. Now, if you don't know that name, that is of global financial crisis fame. Um, there is a joke that goes around on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it about some of the guys who constantly call for things to drop in a big way. You know, the standard joke is, uh, you know, he successfully predicted 10 of the last two recessions, which is something I've always found very funny. Um, you know, it's, it's the classic bearish, <laughs> you know, anti-bear kind of joke. But I think on, on this one, Nico, and I'll, I'll let you share your, your quite funny term for, for what it might be. Uh, was this just misunderstood? You know, is he really shorting the market in the belief that the whole thing is about to topple over and die, or was it a hedge? Yeah, it, it does seem like like we're hearkening back to global financial crisis times where Michael Burry was, like you said, was famous for for predicting it, right? And and to your point, he predicted a few other crises that never materialized. And so, you know, is this is this uh, are we are we seeing the, the 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 playbook again? Is is there another big crisis on the horizon? You know, is this is short the market again? So guys are saying it's too, you know, short too, or too short, too furious, or I don't know, what whatever you want to call it. Are we seeing again a, a replay of 2008? A lot of people, like you said, the, the the sort of classic bears currently, they are predicting some some form of a correction. Now, if we take a step back and just look at how phenomenally the the U.S. market in particular has performed. Um, in isolation, it does seem like the some form of a correction is imminent. If you just look at the U.S. market performance uh, in isolation, uh, I would like to maybe just point out that you know when we discussed the last time we discussed this uh, ghost was in February, I think, where we had a where we had a detailed breakdown of what happened in 2022. So if your listeners want to go back, you know, there we give a sort of a, a take on why markets were so sharply down in 2022. Now, what's since happened is the markets have rebounded quite strongly. Now, some of you might know, if you look at the NASDAQ uh, feeder ETF that we have, the Satrix uh, feeder ETF, I mean, that thing is up close to 50, just, just over 50% in RAND terms year to date. I mean, phenomenal growth. The S&P 5, 500 is sharply up. And so a lot of people are saying, well, has the market run out of steam and are we due for a correction? And one of those, prominent as Michael Burry. Now, earlier in the year, he, he sent out a tweet. I don't know if it, this, what, what we call those things. I saw, a, I saw someone suggest XA. 
which I thought was quite funny. Exe, there we go, there we go. So, so an exe <laughs> as opposed to a tweet. <laughs> so he exed. Uh, he, he had a he had a tweet that that just said uh, sell. This was a few months back, and so there was a lot of action and a lot of people freaking out because you know this is the Oracle of two thousand eight. Not forgetting the fact that he has said a few times since two uh, thousand eight that that a crisis is imminent. And so a lot of people reacted to that. And now what happened now was just over a week ago, he again made headlines by sh by by going effectively against the market, so betting against the market. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the media picked up that he is short the market. Now, there's a big difference between what he actually did and what was kind of put forward in the market as what Michael Burry has done. Uh, so for those of you yeah, that don't know the name, I mean, you know, the big short movie uh, stars is, is, is based on, on, on him and, and the, you know, him predicting the 2008 crisis. But what he has done actually is he effectively bought put options on both the NASDAQ and S&P 500, uh, if I recall, to a notional value of about $1.6 billion. Now, the important thing is, remember, this doesn't mean that Barry put down $1.6 billion. This is simply the notional amount the options implies from these instruments. So nonetheless, it is a big position. Don't get me wrong. But the question is, uh, is this a sequel to 2008? I don't think so, right? Because um, while this is a big exposure, you know, we, we need to understand what it means when we say he's taken out an option, a put option, as opposed to short selling. Now, these options are probably spaced out toward a one-year horizon. Now, if we think about why he likely took this position, one has to look at the price of this market insurance that he bought. And so the last time you and I spoke, we spoke about the VIX. Uh, now, the volatility index or VIX index is a summation of all the, the premiums on the put and call options for the S&P 500 on a forward one month basis. It's effectively the premium for insurance in the market. Now the VIX is at very low levels, comparatively speaking, to a year ago, more than just a year ago. So in other words, the insurance, the price for insurance has actually gone down. And so because he took out a put option and he didn't short the market, he is effectively just buying insurance or buying a payout on the cheap currently, if the market were to correct. So it's not like he is putting down a lot of money in a short position, which uh, for that to, to actually pay out, that outcome needs to materialize in the short term. But if you take out insurance against the market's correction, that's a completely different thing, right? You're not putting down $1.6 billion in the anticipation that the market's going to correct. You're actually just taking out that effectively the insurance. So he is buying insurance on the cheap and it absolutely makes sense, right? And I think he is just going back to his earlier tweet that said just sell he is again indicating that the market might correct and if it does he's getting a good payout but he's certainly not putting his neck on the line yeah it's just typical of of what happens in the markets i suppose is people like to panic they like to panic together and they like to latch onto something and just pull the trigger i mean we saw that crazy situation with a local south african company where a local media outlet uh you know released an article that was just completely wrong and the name of that company was in the headline and it talked about a gas discovery in Mpumalanga and it was just it was inaccurate it had nothing to do with that listed company and the thing traded up from two cents a share to five cents a share that morning and then it was back to two cents a share in the afternoon when a correction was released to say oh whoopsie you know it has nothing to do with that company so people like to trade on the headlines they don't like to do the work they don't like to go and actually read and understand the, the trigger finger just gets pulled and I think that's just how people behave in the market and especially with a more speculative approach. And there's a lot of human nature in that, right? People like to, to gamble. Let's be very honest. People like to have a punt. They like the thrill of the chase. They like the fact that it feels a bit like a game sometimes. And all of these are 
very, very dangerous behaviors, which brings me to my next question, which is, you know, during the pandemic, when a lot of retail investors came into the market for the first time ever, they very much walked into this meme driven investing culture of stonks only go up, you know, deliberately misspelt. Stonks don't only go up, stonks go down too, as a lot of people have learned the hard way, especially on single stock exposures, if they bought at the absolute height of the pandemic. I mean, there have been a lot of names that have been absolutely slaughtered since then because they were just trading at crazy prices. So, Nick, I was wondering, you know, what advice do you give people in terms of just managing their own emotions and mindset when facing volatility? Because the one thing we know for sure with markets is that there is volatility and other than in a crazy macroeconomic circumstance like the pandemic, stonks definitely don't only go up. Yeah, I love I love that you that you reference meme stocks and, and, and stonks because we don't have to think too far back to a time where we were all huddled up and at home in a pandemic. And uh, in the US, they got they effectively got checks in the mail. And so the risk appetite for a lot of these people with the free money was exceptionally high. And so it became a almost a fun pastime to bid up the price of, of of some past loved stocks, but that simply didn't make any sense from a fundamental perspective. So, you know, markets do at times appear to be irrational uh, in terms of their behavior, but you know, I I always think if if you can if you can cut away the noise, and there's a lot of noise, right? There's always noise. There's always a reason not to be invested. There's always a reason not to take any risk and put your money under the mattress. But if you are able to just cut out the noise and take a step back and evaluate your own life cycle, right? And your own uh, horizon for when it comes to investing. I think there's a lot of sensible lessons that we can take from uh, behavioral psychology and from, you know, studies that show how the human mind actually works. And one of the key things is to actually be able to consciously differentiate between saving and investing. So, you know, we we recently... Uh, wrote an article uh, that 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 you hosted on on your site uh, where we discuss compounding, compound interest, and how you know how to properly take advantage of compounding because we've all heard the term right. Compounding is the eighth wonder of the world and all of these nice things, but what does it really mean when we say compounding is, is a is a key to wealth generation? And so the, the the way that we answer this question is actually taking a step back and saying, well, there's more to compounding than simply getting compounding in your favor. In other words, building compounding into your portfolio takes a bit more than just, you know, adding interest on interest or return on in return, as a lot of people sort of understand compounding to be. Now, while that's not wrong, there's actually more to it. And so the first thing that I that I want to say, uh, if you look at your, your longer term cycle, right, let's call it medium to long term, and you're not playing in stonks, and you're not trying to just, you know, bid up the price of a single single name that you like, but you're actually trying to build wealth over the medium to long term. I think the following that, that I'm going to say now is quite important to just understand for yourself and make your own, right, and, 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 and how it applies to your own, because each one's circumstance is different, right? You have people that are absolutely just living paycheck to paycheck and unable to save or invest. And so for those people, what I might say now might not apply as much as it does to someone else that is able to put aside 10 or 15% of their income. But when it comes to creating long-term wealth, we absolutely have to make a, make a clear distinction between saving and investing, because a lot of people see the two as of almost being the same thing. Now, when we when we say saving, what we mean by that is we're putting aside capital uh, in order to help us in a rainy day, right? So your car 
get stranded and you need to replace your tire or your geezer burst or whatever the case is, and you need to actually be able to have cash on hand. Now, that we regard as saving. In other words, saving means you don't utilize all of your income, but you put some of that aside. Investing, however, is something completely different. This is where your time frame uh, goes to the medium to long term. This is not your saving, your investment pool is not something that you should access should you require short term liquidity, right? So you need to replace your tire. You don't delve into your investing in an ideal world. Now, if we take an analogy, saving is almost like taking some of your, if you're a farmer, you take your seeds. Uh, and so you consume some of your seeds, but you put some of that aside to be able to eat your seeds tomorrow. Now, if you're doing that, if you're setting aside seeds, that means you just have your primary goal is to ensure that the seeds don't get lost. So you are extremely risk averse to your savings. When it comes to investing, however, the analogy is that you sow the seeds, you put it into the ground. And so you hope to be able to harvest significantly more seeds in a year or two, six months or how, however long it's going to take you. You're hoping to harvest far more seeds, but you have to take that risk in order by sowing the seeds, putting it into the ground in order to get that reward. And so setting aside seeds means you don't take any risk, but investing means you have to take some risk. Now, when it comes to taking risk, see, this is now the thing where a lot of people get uh, a bit shy and say, well, I'm, I'm risk averse, right? I don't want to lose my hard earned money that I'm putting aside. I actually want to ensure that that gets, you know, uh, I, I don't lose any money even in the long term. I just, I just want to have it be secure from quarter to quarter. And I'm very sensitive to losses. The problem is that's actually the wrong way to look at it, right? Because the greatest risk that you can take when it comes to long term investing is not taking any risk at all. And that is the key to compounding, is getting well-rewarded sources of risk. In other words, taking risks like a farmer sowing those seeds. It is a risk, yes, because a bird might, might come and eat the seed or it might not grow. But on the balance, that farmer knows when you put that seed in the ground, you're going to earn a much higher harvest, right? And so when it comes to our investing, we should have a longer-term outlook and be able Oh, and, and be willing to adopt some form of risk in order to have that compounding work in our favor. Because if you compound, and, and the, the article, I'm not going to uh, sort of rehash the entirety of the article, but the article shows that if you simply in, uh, save your, your uh, retained earnings over time, in other words, you put aside 10% and you put that into a savings vehicle and you just get that 5 or 6% uh, yield over the long term, you're actually just keeping up with inflation. You're not growing wealth. Even though that is compounding, yes, the, the, the amount of compounding that you're getting is far lower than, than if, if you would take some form of risk and well-regarded risk. So not going to the casino and putting everything on black on the roulette table. I'm talking about taking well-rewarded risk in through equity exposure or through um, some kind of uh, collective investment scheme vehicle that provides you that Diversification, yes, because that's important. But secondly, and, and most importantly, giving you that sources of risk that actually have a sensible payout. And once you do that, and, and in your mind, compartmentalize the difference between saving, putting aside money, and being safe with that. Now, that you put in a, an interest-bearing vehicle that doesn't lose money, and then separating that out from the portion that you invest. And if you can put that aside and, and sort of have the principle of out of sight, out of mind, uh, and you, you start putting that aside and taking some well-rewarded risk, I guarantee you in 20 years, 30 years' time, like the farmer, you will see that seeds grow and harvest and actually give you a far greater return than had you just not taken any risk in the, in the short term.
Yeah, absolutely. And what's quite nice is you're getting paid to save at the moment because of where interest rates are. And that isn't always the case, you know. So as you balance your saving and investing, it is helpful that the savings accounts at the moment, I mean, in some cases, depending on how much notice you can give, etc., you can pretty much get a real return on your savings, never mind your investments at the moment. And that's not always the case, right? Correct. Uh, I, I, I do want to caveat, though, when it comes to, to where interest rates currently are, I mean, they are quite elevated. And you know, it it does seem like an attractive proposition to 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 almost fully allocate to fixed interest vehicles. Now, while that that should be part of your overall strategy, certainly, you know, if you look at the medium to long term, typically interest bearing assets do not give you that large sort of wealth growth um, over the long term that equities, for example, would would give you. Now, I would always advocate for having a balanced approach to when it comes to your investing. So having some part in interest bearing assets, but also taking that, that, that building that risk element in, because if you think about it critically, interest bearing vehicles should effectively give you compensation for inflation and a slight risk premium, right? Because you're taking some, some risk, uh, over time, interest rate risk and default risk for the entity paying the, the coupons. But in, in, in reality, over the long term, you should not be making a large real gain. So yes, there's there's some uh, uh, short-term gain, real returns that you're earning from interest-bearing assets. But certainly when it comes to managing your long-term investments, that shouldn't in an ideal sense be your, the entirety of your investment portfolio. You should have those you know, equity premiums, for example, that gives you that long-term uh, upside growth. Yeah, absolutely. The world of investing and finance is interesting and it's very much about balancing all of these things. I agree with that. Something I want to touch on next you know we talk about a high yield environment and you can get paid lots of interest something that uh, people look at of course is dividends and that's an equity investment that is paying you something along the way so you're not just reliant on capital growth not all companies pay dividends uh, I almost said obviously there but in reality it's not actually obvious for someone who hasn't got a lot of experience in the market so you know, the reality is some companies don't pay dividends and they don't pay dividends. In, in some cases, it's bad because they actually just can't because they are trying to pay down debt. The balance sheet is in a lot of trouble. That's very different to a company that isn't paying dividends because it's reinvesting everything or almost everything for growth. And there you would look at stuff like return on incremental invested capital. You know, are they getting a good return with your money or should they rather be paying you a dividend? But in reality, most companies do pay a dividend and in the US, dividend yields tend to be between kind of 1% and I would say up to about 3%. It's quite rare to see anything higher than that. On the JSE, some of our small and mid caps trade at a lower uh, earnings multiple. And so that means a higher dividend yield. So sometimes you can get paid a 5 or 6% dividend by a company that is also managing to grow its headline earnings per year by, you know, 7 or 8%. So if you only look at the share price return there, you're selling yourself very short in terms of, you know, what the thing is actually returning to investors. And when you combine capital gain on the share price plus the dividend yield, then you get a total return. And that's very important to consider when looking at a dividend paying stock. But there are perils around dividends, right? And I think the mining industry has taught some very hard lessons in the past year to those who have been buying on a trailing dividend yields. So Nico, I'm going to let you explain that because you'll do a better job than me, no doubt. And uh, would you agree that that's a pretty stark example of the danger of a trailing dividend yield? That's a great example. Yes. And I, 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 I'm so glad you raised the, the issue of dividends because there's, there's this mis, misconception in the market that, you know, dividends is a form of yield. So I want to, I want to 
unpack that maybe make that statement to 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 get you to poke your ears because this is you know even professional investors make this mistake a lot of times where they equate dividends to yield um and you'll see for example on even reputable uh, sources make the claim that you know currently for example in the us the uh, 10-year bond is paying you thus yield and the equity market is paying you thus yield and they make a direct comparison as if you can compare the two um, directly now in truth in reality a dividend is simply a capital allocation decision that management makes right and so you have to look at a dividend in totality for what it is doing relative to your your capital gains as well you cannot actually disconnect the two and so, so you, when you're holding a company, for example, let's say you hold ShopRite shares, uh, one part of your return is from the price moving up or down, and another part of your return is from whether they pay a dividend or not. Now, a company needs not to pay a dividend to make that an attractive investment, right? And ask any uh, uh, Google shareholders, for example, uh, Alphabet shareholders over the last you know, 10 years, whether they... Uh, they are upset about the fact that they didn't receive a check in the mail. Certainly, they are very happy that they've been invested in that company for 10 years, even though no dividend was paid. And that's because the capital gain on holding that company has been so great. So now the question is, and, and, and especially to, to a layperson out there might be, but hang on, wait, wait. I, I, I always heard that high dividend paying companies is attractive because of compounded interest and compounding, right? So those dividends earning dividends on themselves. So to take a step back, if a company doesn't pay a dividend, well, you're just getting all the returns actually in the, the price increasing, right? And so the nice thing about that is there's no tax incidence. When a company pays out a dividend, that is taxed. But if the price goes up for a company, that is only taxed once you sell the stock. So once you realize those capital gains, then you are taxed. So in the interim, if you hold a company or stock or, or whatever for 10 or 15 years, you're not paying any dividends on the capital gains until you sell it. That's completely different than when a company pays out a periodic uh, dividend. Now, South Africa, you are right, is more known for paying out higher dividends. And it, it's it's more closely aligned in that regard to the UK, for example, where companies traditionally have, have paid out higher dividends. In the US, less so, less emphasis on paying out dividends and more emphasis actually on reinvesting earnings back into the company. Now, if you think of where a dividend comes from, it is simply retained earnings. In other words, what a company is left over with at the end of the year, and they can then decide, well, are we taking those earnings and keeping it as a cash buffer? Are we paying out some of those retained earnings in, in dividends? Or are we uh, you know, buying back our own shares or whatever? They have capital allocation decisions to make. A dividend being paid out is not a requirement. And so once we start to think about dividends as a, as a capital decision, then immediately we start to go, okay, but hang on, if they're not deciding to pay out a dividend, why are companies actually paying out dividends? And so that's always an interesting question. And I, th I think, you know, there's, there's various reasons for that, liquidity being one of them or other uh, decisions. There might be less opportunity, for example, for R&D, in which case a company might decide to actually pay out some of those retained earnings to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. Now, Maybe if, if 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 I can make an analogy, just to put into perspective what a dividend is, right? And I I think I think they they a lot of people misunderstand it. So if you take your APSA or your NetBank card and you go to an ATM and you put it in, you type in your PIN and you say I want to draw two hundred rand. I've very seldomly seen anyone take that two hundred rand, you know, wave it up in the air and say, look, you know, I've hit the jackpot. Just put in your card here, type out your PIN, and you're going to get cash. Everyone's just going to look at that person and say, well, 
you know, that's just you on a net basis, you're exactly equivalent, right? Because you've now deducted 200 grand from your bank account. It's not like you're getting something for nothing, right? So it's not a win now that you have cash in hand. It just means you're going from having cash in the bank account to having some part of that in your hand. Now, a dividend in truth is actually exactly the same thing. When a company pays out that dividend, you're sitting with cash in hand now while also holding the stock. But on a net basis, you should be exactly equivalent because those dividends are being paid out through retained earnings. You're not getting that from some third-party entity. So a high-paying dividend company uh, should be evaluated from that lens. And so if you, if you say that a company is attractive because it pays out a high dividend, you must caveat that by saying, well, that dividend is a proxy for good cash flow management, for example that will allow them to pay out a high dividend. Or there might be other tax considerations or liquidity considerations. But in and of itself, just the vir by virtue of paying out the dividend does not mean a company is, is doing something well or not. Because that, that can purely be a capital decision. And there's times where a company should actually be reinvesting that back into the company. You know, if there's a lot of growth, growth prospect out there and companies might actually increase market share, well, why would you pay out those hard-earned uh, retained earnings? You might as well just... Uh, put that back into the company or expand your company. And so, you know, it, it's it's actually a complicated decision, comparatively speaking, and we can't simply say that a high divvy company is a good company in and of itself. And and so to your point, you know, resource companies uh, that had incredibly high trailing uh, dividend uh, yields, I mean, you know, the, the problem is also, and I want just, to just, just maybe leave this, this with your listeners as well. When you look at a dividend yield, always remember that it is dividends paid out relative to price. And so if a company sees a, a sharp reduction in price, let's say, you know, Tungela's and as a good example this year, Tungela's share price was sold down quite aggressively to the point where their projected dividend payout relative to price was extremely attractive. But now you have to ask yourself, hang on, if the price of this company went down 20, 30, 40% over the last quarter, is this not maybe a signal of cash flow issues? Or is this also maybe a signal of challenges that the company is facing that might make it less likely to actually pay out that dividend? And so that dividend yield then might actually be a bit of a skewed reflection of past capabilities relative to future capabilities. So I just want to you know, also just leave that with you that when looking at dividend yield, be careful because price is in the denominator as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there really is so much to unpack. We could probably do an entire show on capital allocation theory. A couple of the things that I just want to touch on is, you know, the first point is share buybacks, which is an alternative to dividends that are quite poorly understood. Actually, I think in South Africa, not too bad. I think that most South African companies that use share buybacks do it properly. And the theory there is when your share price is relatively undervalued, a company executing share buybacks means it's actually effectively investing in itself. So it's saying, hey, market, you know, you are putting our share price on a level that is too low. We like that level. We will buy ourselves. We'll, we'll we'll buy our own shares rather, you know. And in the U.S., that doesn't get used properly. In the U.S., share buybacks are like just something you do, even when you're trading a 30x PE. And there are some tax benefits to it, but it gets used, in my opinion, quite badly in the U.S. We see it all the time when we look at stuff in magic markets. Locally, it gets used pretty well. So what you don't want to see, for example, is you know, if a company's share price is trading at a very large discount to its tangible net asset value or historical levels in terms of multiples, when that company is declaring a cash dividend, that probably doesn't make sense. They should then, you know, if they have no other use for the capital, 
rather go and do a share buyback. And what you've spoken to there is that kind of capital waterfall. You know, what should we do with this money? Do we have our own investment opportunities that beat our weighted average cost of capital? If we do, we should do them. If we don't, we need to give that money back to shareholders. And I think the important point there is, you know, that's the one area where the dividend policy is is quite important, I would say, is in terms of just keeping management teams honest. And it takes a mature management team not to try and build a big castle and then run it, you know, and take bigger fees along the way in the form of a salary or a bonus, or whatever the case may be. And so what happens is every time they don't pay a dividend, you know, the castle just gets bigger, right? Because there's more cash on the balance sheet. So paying a dividend, it actually is a sign of maturity in a management team that says, hey, we don't necessarily have a better use for this money. Sure, we could go and do something silly with it. And you see some crazy things on the market. I mean, there are local companies that will just go and I won't mention who it is, but <laughs> there's a local company that I would not invest in with my worst enemy's money. And basically they had this big amount in treasury and they went and just, you know, decided to go and dabble in a portfolio of single stocks for no reason. It's not an investment holding company. Like this is not at all what they should be doing. But I mean, why not? You know, just take the shell, the money and go YOLO into some stocks. It, it, crazy stuff like that just immediately puts me off a business. But some of the other stuff, you know, when dividends are too high and they should be doing share buybacks, it tells you something about the management team's ability to allocate capital. And there are companies on the JSE that see themselves as cash cows, run themselves as cash cows, and are rewarded by the market who trusts them not to go and waste the money on silly acquisitions or whatever the case may be. And sometimes that's on a divvy yield of 9% or 10% and it's not even a property company because that's almost the whole return you're going to get out of the thing. You might get a little bit of inflation protection plus that big dividend. Yeah, and you know, so to your point on share buybacks, I mean, in truth, when you when a company buys back their, their shares, remember you're now increasing demand for the shares. And if there's more demand for apples or oranges, you'd expect the price to go up, commensurately speaking. So this is also what happens when a company goes to the market and they buy back their shares, you simply get the value for that in the increase in the price for the shares that you're holding. So you're getting the benefit through capital gains this time, as opposed to getting the benefit through cash in the mail. And so there's there's tax benefits to that. And, and so you see more of an emphasis on that in the US. And also maybe uh, to your point as well, you know, a lot of companies almost see a dividend as an obligation to their shareholders. So there's like a dividend obligation that they have to maintain to their shareholders. So Throughout the cycle, you know, whether there's, it makes sense to, to be paying out dividends or not, they kind of see that as a minimum requirement for them uh, relative to their shareholders, which actually doesn't make sense. And if you look at the US, the, the, the predominantly the, 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 the share buyback approach that you see predominantly, yes, there are times where companies do it very poorly, but at the end of the day, you, it allows much more flexibility for management uh, to, to strategically decide how they are going to manage their buybacks and how they're going to effectively give back the, the the value of the retained earnings to their shareholders. And that flexibility can be incredibly important as you navigate through different cycles of opportunity. Because obviously, there's going to be times where there's less opportunity out there for R&D for a company, and in which case, it might make sense to actually just provide the capital back to uh, their constituents. But there's going to be times where you want to go uh, and, and expand your business. And so Retaining this flexibility is easier to do when you have predominantly a share buyback strategy because dividends, I mean, in South Africa, you know, you change your dividend policy, you cut your dividend payout, I guarantee you, you're going to get, you're going to get quite, quite angry faces in the market and you'll see the, the impact of that on your share price. 
So Nico, you've raised a really good point there around payout ratios. And, you know, we have seen examples of South African blue chips that have cut their payout ratio. I think Vodacom is one off the top of my head. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Apologies if I am. They've got a lot of uh, uh, capital needs in terms of rolling out their growth strategy. What we see in the U.S. is that companies will defend their dividend aristocrat status to the nth degree. And it's this concept in the U.S. of a company... Sure, I don't actually know the exact definition, but basically a company that has paid and grown its dividend for a very long time. I mean, go and check out you know, the exact definition. Maybe I should go do that. But what they do is they pay an artificially low cash payout ratio in what I've seen. So they'll make a big son and dance about being a dividend aristocrat, but in reality, they're paying 20% of profits as a cash divvy, and they increase that every year just a little bit because, to your point, they're using share buybacks for maximum flexibility because no one is really holding them to that. If you do a billion dollars worth of share buybacks this year, two billion next year, and then 200 million the following year, no one's really worried about that, actually. No one bats an eye. No, no one bats an eye. But if you do that with your cash dividend, <laughs> your share price... Oh, uh, you're going to get... No, it's going to be all... Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're going to get whatever. You know, it's not going to be pretty. We know this. And uh, <laughs> it's it's very much this capital allocation theory and how companies behave and how they treat the market. And I suppose the point is an ETF, it, it's really a roll-up of a whole bunch of companies that have different dividend policies some ETFs, the factor weighting is more towards dividends. Sometimes it's less. And I guess you just have to be careful when you're investing in the market, you know, especially where you see dividends that are maybe a little bit out of touch with reality or big distortions in trailing dividends. I mean, like anything in life, you need to do your own research. An ETF is not different to a single stock in terms of the need to go and do your own research. It's a hell of a lot easier, in my opinion, because you need to read a fact sheet and, and really beyond that, you don't need to read a whole lot. You don't need to go and read 40 companies' reports. But that's an important point, right? You've got to do your research, even when you're buying an ETF that tracks an index. Correct. And and, and so that that's to my earlier point. It's just don't make the mistake of looking at an index and saying, oh, this is the dividend yield. Let's say 4% or 5% or 8%. And then look at that and compare that to a bond that pays you a guaranteed 8% over five years or 10 years. And then look at the two and say, they are equivalent. I can compare the yields. Because in reality, if you hold a company, you buy a company that that will pay out uh, a dividend yield of, let's say, 10%, and you look at that and you go, that that's a great investment. Well, I can tell you, tell you now for free, in a year's time from now, even if they paid out that high dividend, but you saw a capital loss of 20%, that's cold comfort, right? I mean, you got cash in hand, yes, but the value of the stock that you're holding is down 20%. So just remember, you can never disconnect the price movements from the dividend being paid out. It simply doesn't make sense. You have to look at the world from a total return perspective and then look at the two combined. And so if a company pays out an attractive dividend, the next question that you must ask yourself is, what is that proxying for? Is that proxying for good cash flow management, good general management that allows them to be a dividend aristocrat? Because in truth, the dividend aristocrat label in my mind, should be it should be more a label of continued uh, dominance in the market, continued positioning that allows you to to attract earnings, that allows you to actually sustain a dividend. But that is a proxy, right? The dividend is simply there a signal, and there's actually other better direct signals for cash flow management quality and all of those things than simply proxying for that using a dividend. So while they are dividend has dividends have its place and there's there's certainly you know elements to it that 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 make sense and 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 should be part of your portfolio sure but 
in reality, it's not just as simple as, as putting two companies next to one another and saying this one pays a better dividend or this strategy or ETF pays a high dividend and should be preferred relative to one that doesn't pay a high dividend. Uh, we, we simply can't look at, at, at the world from that lens alone. And I know this might be news to some uh, so, sort of lay investors out there that always saw dividends as being this net good. I just want to remind you again, it's like going to the to the ATM, pulling money uh, out and then celebrating the fact that you have cash in hand. Well, just look at your net position. And if your net position hasn't changed, well, you know, there you go. There's your answer. Absolutely. And I fully agree with you that aristocrat status should be based on earnings, not on dividends. It's easy to juck that and just, you know, keep your dividend powered ratio artificially low. I'd actually love to see how many companies would fall into that you know, if there was a rule that says, I don't know, earnings growth in every nine out of 10 years or something, I don't know, it would just be very, very interesting or some kind of free cash flow measure. That would really be a shocker. Anyway, uh, Nico, conscious of time, we're at almost 40 minutes here. We've had a very good show. Uh, I want to just mention something that you raised before the time to talk about, and that is the buzzword of artificial intelligence. And before everyone audibly groans and goes, oh no, not again, you know, it is worth talking about this. And in this case, we want to just talk about it a little bit in the context of indexation, which is basically passive ETFs, although the active versus passive argument is always a, a difficult or, or a different one, uh, versus active management. And I suppose that means, you know, unit trusts that go and actively allocate capital versus tracking an index. Let me not use the active versus passive because I know that has its own uh, issues necessarily. How do you see AI playing a role in all of this? Yeah, look, AI is one of those things that's, that's you know, we're already seeing it, it, it impacting various facets of our lives and, and will likely continue to do so. You know, the technology is still in its comparative infancy. I always think of, you know, Google being, I don't know, what was it, the 17th or 18th search engine uh, turned out to be the one that matured, right? Um, and so the first iteration of a technology is seldomly the final iteration. And so just want to caveat that what we see today and at the applications of AI, I think is still in its infancy. So it, it has a ways to go still. But at the core, what will not change is that AI, the way that we see it now, so open AI, open access to artificial intelligence, is simply a, a, a an incredibly efficient collation of information, right? So think of it as Google 2.0, right? It's incredibly efficient at uh, scraping the internet, at uh, even if you input uh, information that it must learn from to actually to, to actually understand or, or, or uh, take in the information and provide answers that are human-like and relevant. Now, the obvious question that, that people should ask them is, well, how is this going to affect investing? And how is this going to impact me going forward in terms of how I manage my investment portfolio? So from the perspective of how it will influence share prices, I think it's important to maybe go from that perspective on. So through this incredibly efficient collation of information, what will most likely happen is that new information that gets to the market will be very quickly disseminated and, and uh, available to analysts and fund managers and the like to get us to a price level that is, let's, let's call it quote unquote, uh, efficient. So uh, where the price is an efficient reflection of all the available information in the market. Now, that price where a company trades at, let's say where Naspers or ShopRite trades at, is already the culmination of all the complexity in the market that goes into determining that price, right? So the price is already very, very efficient. Now, if a technology emerges like OpenAI and starts to mature, and the inf impact that that has is, is just it makes those prices even more efficient. Well, the next question that you have to ask yourself is, 
who will in this market be able to differentiate themselves actively, right? So in other words, be able to actively pick and buy and sell companies based on uh, differences in agreement on prices, who will be able to do so consistently and correctly over time? And so that will likely become harder and harder to do as the barriers to entry, if you like, for accessing information and, and, and utilizing that information gets lower. So what I foresee is that uh, indexation, in other words, where you simply uh, buy and hold a portfolio of companies uh, and, and accept the price, if you like, where companies are trading out in the market, will actually become harder and harder to outperform as the prices for the underlying gets closer to a level that we can regard as efficient, right? So as the prices are a better reflection of all the information out there in the market, that means that an index that simply accepts those prices and builds a portfolio and focuses on that which we can control, cost, uh, both management as well as, as, as trading, et cetera, and we reduce costs. So we focus on the cost side, but we build the, the portfolio that simply gives you a reflection of where prices are at. Well, that strategy actually becomes more and more attractive when the prices are closer to reality. And so how I see this playing out is that, sure, you're definitely still going to get active managers that are able to correctly predict, you know, which companies are undervalued, for example. But I think those pockets of opportunities for active managers to to be able to have those profitable periods of differentiation will probably just become less and less uh, and, 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 and they're going to struggle to be consistent in that regard. I do not think this is the death of active management in any regard. It can't be because you will always need active managers to do the price discovery. It can't only be indexation, right? But I do, I do think, you know, if you currently look at it, about 15% of assets uh, in South Africa is in some form of indexation, whether that's pure passive or non-vanilla uh, indexation, about 15%. I think that that proportion will likely rise significantly going forward as prices are closer reflection of reality um, and as active managers struggle to to more consistently find uh, those opportunities that being said though and i'll, I'll leave this I'll, I'll, I'll end off with this is where humans are great at is actually being able to internalize information and make decisions that might seem suboptimal to an algorithm right based on available information but where the human's intuition is actually correct in other words where someone might say Objectively speaking, from the viewpoint of any artificial intelligence algorithm, we should not be holding this company. But, but I believe that this company has opportunity and potential that is not fully reflected in the available information set. In other words, you're acting either on a hunch or on experience or whatever that is. And that is very hard to actually quantify and actually put into an algorithm. So there I still do think that people will have an edge is being able to utilize the information coming from the machine, uh, but then be able to make those judgment calls. But again, the, the, the question for me is how consistently are you going to be able to make those right calls? Uh, in other words, make those potentially suboptimal decisions that turn out to be correct. Are you going to be able to do that quarter on quarter on quarter? Sure, you will have managers that are able to do so, but I do think it's going to be harder to actually find those. Really interesting point in there on price discovery from the active side of the market, indexation. We could do this uh, all day, I think, Nico, but we must bring this to a close. And I have one last question for you, which is, dun, 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 drum roll, please. 
Uh, how do you do it? You know, every month do you go and buy a basket of ETFs? I'm talking about your own money now. Do you kind of pick one each month that you think is trading at a good level? Uh, so do you take a more active slant on it than that? Obviously, we can't get into all the detail now. We're out of time. But I think just two minutes on, on that would be interesting to know. Uh, look, Ghost, I have three little mini versions of me. Um, so at the moment, investing is very hard to come by. The money that I earn just goes straight into school fees, <laughs> if you know how expensive uh, toddler schools are. No, uh, jokes aside, uh, how I how I manage my investing is through absolutely through long term strategies. So there, I and, and this might not work for everyone, but what I do is I have a debit uh, order that goes through every month, the first of the month, out of sight, out of mind. That gets invested in uh, low cost investment vehicles that are well diversified. Um, so some in South Africa, some overseas through feeder ETFs, and I just build that and I just try not to keep an eye on it. I just want that to tick along. It's my investment portfolio. I keep it really simple. Um, I don't dabble in individual companies, uh, although I find it fascinating and I love reading about how you, for example, analyze companies and there's some great uh, content out there. I personally don't, don't back myself in being able to find the winning horse. I like to diversify and focus my attention on other things that I can control better. Um, but when it comes to individual company, buying companies, buying and selling, I don't, I don't do that, unfortunately. So the exact opposite to me, basically. That's why you always look so relaxed, Nick. And now I get it because you've got this nice debit order, pay yourself first into ETFs strategy. Whereas, uh, yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not what I do. Although having said that, obviously, and I do just want to end on this actually, I think ETFs belong in every single portfolio because they give you this very low cost way to buy market exposure. What you do with the rest of your exposure in terms of single stocks, some more exotic stuff, alternative assets in your bigger portfolio, whatever the case may be, is a different story. But there is a lot to be said for consistently buying market exposure over the long term. And that's where ETFs are super powerful, whether you enjoy single stocks or not. For me, it's not an either or, it's an and. And that is very, very important, especially with your tax-free savings account in South Africa. Sometimes I see people on Twitter who have different views on it. For me, tax-free savings account, absolute no-brainer. You should be maxing that every single year. You can only buy ETFs in there. And, uh, and that's what you should be doing. It's, it's just, it's a gift. You know, don't, don't lose the opportunity to do that. Nick, I think let's, uh, let's leave it there. Thank you so much, as always. Such an interesting conversation. I love doing this with you. And uh, good luck with the three little ones. You know, I only have one to worry about. That's hard enough. So you've got the exponential, exponential graph there. <laughs> and I look forward to doing another one of these with you. Amazing. Thank you, Ghost. Ciao.